0: I invite you to plant your feet on the earth, slow down, tune in, and get ready to create a life of meaning and magic. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Wellpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Cook. And this week, we're talking with an inspiring entrepreneur who strongly believes in the ethical, sustainable sourcing of the wellness ingredients that we're using today, and especially turmeric. I'm speaking with Sana Javeri-Kadri of Diaspora Co. And Sana was a food photographer who grew up in India, and while she was living in the U.S., saw the turmeric trend taking off and realized that it really wasn't being responsibly sourced. In fact, most people had no idea where their turmeric was coming from, and the farmers were really being exploited and certainly not compensated fairly for the products they were producing. Plus, there was a situation, just because of the basis of the spice trade being based on colonialism, that so many of the varieties being grown were quite limited and not using these really potent heirloom varieties that were traditionally used in India. So she took a big leap of faith and decided to start bringing some transparency into that supply chain and really compensating the farmers fairly and creating a supply of turmeric that is amazing quality, but also treats the people that are producing it well. I'm totally inspired by her story, and I think you're really going to enjoy this interview where we're talking about how she came at this business from a real desire to understand the links in the chain and just following her curiosity. I think it's also a great example of how all these different things that happen in your life and your unique background can really combine to make you uniquely suited to do your own business. And that's certainly the case for Sana. We're talking about what's wrong with the spice trade today and how it's so outdated and how to really bring some light to it and start to do better. We're talking about how she got started with business, how she was able to launch it without doing crazy marketing campaigns. And of course, at the end, I ask her for some turmeric tips because being in wellness, we all want to know more about turmeric, right? I thought you guys would like that too. So I think it's a really inspiring, thought-provoking interview. And I know it made me think, you know what? I can really go after something bigger. Like, don't be afraid of something just because it's traditionally not an industry that you have a lot of experience in. You can do it. You can go after it. And I think she'll inspire you to feel that too. Now, if you're a new listener who is a wellness entrepreneur or an aspiring wellness entrepreneur, then I just wanted to let you know that I've written the book, Wellpreneur. It's available on Amazon and it teaches you how to bring more of the right people to your website and turn them into paying clients. So if you've ever wanted to learn how to market your wellness business online, the book has everything in it. It's really good stuff. It's in Kindle and print on Amazon. I've also got a companion planner to help you plan the next 12 months. Thousands of Wellpreneurs already have and are using the book, and we're connecting over in our Facebook group, which is called the Wellpreneur Community Group. So I'd love it if you're looking at growing your wellness business this year, go check out the book on Amazon and then come join us on Facebook. You can also find me at my website, amandacook.me, where if you sign up for my email list, you'll hear from me about every week with all the goodness that's going on in the wellness world, on the podcast, in our community and in my life to help develop curiosity, freedom, connection, and make a bigger impact with our wellness businesses. Okay, now let's jump into this interview with Sana javeri Kadri of Diaspora Co. Hi, Sana, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me, Amanda.
0: I first discovered you in an article in Bon Appetit magazine. And where I'd like to start with our interview today is they had a great line in there that said that you're not some woo-woo Ayurveda person like starting a turmeric business. You're a supply chain nerd. So with that, tell us a bit about this. How did you come to start the business that you have now? First of all, I have to correct that statement so many
1: times just because I feel so bad that, I mean, it came off as a bit snobby in the article where I'm like, it is true. I think the point I was trying to make is that As you said, I came into this from the supply chain side of things. And really, you know, I was thinking about coffee and quinoa and chocolate and thinking about how those supply chains were cleaned up often quite late in the game once severe injustice within that supply chain had already occurred. And I think with turmeric, I kind of wanted to jump in just as the trend was hitting and be like, wait, maybe we could change this. But in terms of going back and starting it, I was working in food marketing and a lot of my research and academic background in my undergraduate program was around understanding supply chains, but also understanding how colonialism in India specifically, which is where I grew up, affected that supply chain. And it was really interesting for me, I guess, to understand that the spice trade was created for British consumption and for essentially colonial exploitation. And as, you know, a post-colonial person living in Mumbai, actually, yes, we were kind of told that Gandhi freed us and India is free now. But for the most part, the messaging that I was sent was that, you know, the British gave us trains and they it's the reason that we speak English. So there was this underlying idea through my Mumbai post-colonial education that, you know, yes, it was bad, but the British were also good in that they gave us all these things. And I never had an education in which I was told all the ways that the British kind of took or stole from us, mm-hmm. or all the ways that the injustices that I saw in India in terms of the caste system, or in terms of, you know, deep, deep poverty within agriculture actually came from the effects of colonialism. And that was only something I started fully understanding in college, in living in the United States. So once I had been removed from India, and then when the turmeric trend hit, I think I had enough research background on the spice trade to be like wait 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 this trend is hitting and you know all of these cute companies are talking about their golden lattes and like their I don't know golden face masks that are going to change somebody's complexion and on their websites like every other millennial business they're saying that they're ethically sourced but I've seen what sourcing in India looks like and what people get away with calling ethical sourcing So I guess I just had a hunch that that wasn't true. And I started asking, I started sending emails. So I asked John Beaver of Oaktown Spice, like, you know, he's been in this business for over 20 years. And I asked him, like, where where are your spices coming from? Where in India are you importing from? And he got back to me very plainly and was like, I have absolutely no idea. Mm. And if you find out, please let me know. And I think to me, that was such a wake up call that this person who literally runs a spice business has no idea where his stuff is coming from but it's being sold in this beautiful store to a very kind of choice clientele Mm -hmm. um, a high-end kind of luxury market so that's kind of how my journey began and I think it just snowballed from there where I thought this would get was going to be a research project but I became a bit obsessed and then 19 turmeric farms later (laughs) I was starting a business and I don't have a business background. I was 23 when I started the company. The money that I had to start the company was the $3,000 from my tax refund, my first business. And I'm not saying any of this to romanticize it. I feel like I say this stuff more to explain that I didn't get into it knowing what I was doing. And so a lot of things have been like waking up every morning, not knowing the answer and making up the answer. And there have been a lot of mistakes along the way where you know, early on, I really positioned us as a queer company because it was at a time in my life that I was coming out. I was young. Well, I still am young, but I I felt like calling it a queer company was me being radical and inclusive and saying that, you know, queer politics are for everybody and are a level of justice that doesn't exist. And so starting a queer company is exactly the justice that I want to see served, not also realizing that, calling something a queer company is very odd to a lot of straight people for whom they see it as like, well, what does your sexuality have to do with it? What does sex have to do with business and turmeric? So, you know, there've been a lot of mistakes around along the way, but ultimately I think we've really been able to stay true to our goal, which is that we want to market indigenous and heirloom Indian spices. And we want to pay our farmers super ethically and actually have them be partners in our business. And we profit share with our farm partners, we pay them 10 times the market price. And then we do supply to a lot of wellness companies. So a lot of those companies that initially, I felt very suspicious of their supply chain. And I felt a bit, you know, like, where is your stuff coming from? How are you just wildly profiting off of this golden latte trend have come around and now buy from us. And I feel in doing that are really completing the circle that you know, if a golden latte makes people feel trendy, that's fine. That's wonderful. Now, with our company as kind of the missing link, they also know where it's coming from, and who's profiting off of it. And that I think that for me was the kind of addition to wellness that I wanted to see.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for sharing all of that. There's quite a few ways I want to go, a few different angles I want to talk to you about. But I know for a lot of the listeners out there, you know, working in wellness, I'm really curious about this idea of like really knowing where your ingredients come from, because I think now it can be so trendy to recommend, you know, like quinoa was a big thing or turmeric or something from some other part of the world. And we really have no idea. I mean, we're just buying it blindly because it's trendy most of the time. So what you said, like even people that were working in the spice trade didn't have visibility into their supply chain. Why? Why is that? Are there just too many intermediaries?
1: Yeah, ultimately, these supply chains were built around the trading system, right? And so the farmer would sell it to the guy with a pickup truck that came to his farm and gave him cash in hand so that he could pay all of his labor and all of his equipment. And then that guy with the pickup truck would sell it to four more people. And then that guy, the fourth trader, would sell it to an exporter. The exporter would bump up the price by at least five times, sell it to an importer. The importer would sell it to warehouse logistics company in the US. And then what that warehouse logistics company would then sell it at like a more than 100 times the original price to the company that is buying it for their product or to the consumer. So that end, there's no transparency. I mean, even if the warehouse guy wanted to know where it started from, that's not a supply chain that he could have traced. And I say he because it's usually a man, not because of any, well, because sexism. So I think that's one thing. And also, you know, these products were all colonial commodities. Like if you look at chocolate, I think the bean-to-bar chocolate movement has really changed the game for cacao. And I'm really in awe of the chocolate makers who pioneered that because they went from saying, oh, chocolate should be something that it's in in the candy section to no chocolate can be something that, One, costs $8, which is hard, and is also a craft item that can be beautifully prepared and has nuances and just like the cacao farmers deserve to A, know what their chocolate tastes like and B, be making, you know, a really decent income off of this for providing us ultimately with a luxury good.
0: One thing I love about your story is that it really goes with, it started from following your curiosity. And you were just curious, how does this work? And I, I know I found in my business that often leads to the best ideas because there's like a real spark of something that captures you. And as you start to follow it, then, then things unfold. But as you started, as you kind of followed that and realized, you know, this could really turn into something, did you, I mean, did you have that moment when you're like, who am I to try to change this? Or like, wow, how can I even do this thing? I don't, I mean, that sounds like such a daunting process. Did that stuff come up for you? Yeah.
1: I often joke that if I knew that everything that this business would involve and everything it would require me to sacrifice, if I had to do it again, I probably wouldn't. I would probably shut up, go get a job and move on. Cause like I said, like I started this with $3,000 in savings and as a 23 year old, like very little work experience and a real feeling if I wanted to prove myself, I think in terms of who am I to do this? I think for the first time in my life, you know, working in the, I moved to the U.S. now seven years ago, but when I started this company, it had been about five years. And I was really starting to feel like I didn't fit in into the American food industry and that my story and my understanding of India and our culture didn't make sense here and wasn't translating. People weren't understanding where I came from. Often people would be like, oh, well, you you kind of seem like an Indian princess. Like, How come you speak such good English? And not understanding all of the nuances that it took to make me who I am and brought me here. And that's the story of so many immigrants, I feel like, whose kind of identities are really flattened when they come here. So I think when I started to have the idea for this business, it was the first time I felt like, actually, I am the perfect person to do this. My roots are in India, my immediate and closest family are, are in India. I speak several Indian languages. I have always wanted to ultimately work to the benefit of Indian social good. Living in America for me was really just feeling like I couldn't be fully myself and fully queer in India at this stage. Like I would always live a double life and I fell in love here. I, I now have a life here, but I've always wanted to go back and never been able to reconcile how I could do that. And in a lot of ways, this business allowed me to reconcile with that and be like, OK, well, now my work takes me home. And also, I am Indian at my core. I'm not Indian American. Four generations of my family have been dedicated to working in and making a difference in India. So this talk is like very patriotic to me and very much in my blood of this is what I was raised to do. This is why I was sent to America to go to college. This is why I was given the best education. So that I could do something with it. And I don't mean that in a charity way at all. Like, I know that our partner for Farmer Prabhu, like, if I hadn't come around, he would have found another way to make money. You know, these people are too entrepreneurial and too hungry for success and for change to make a difference with or without me. I had very little to do with it. Me or somebody else was going to come along. I think it just happened to be a perfect fit where he was looking for. Somebody to market his product and really give him what he was due. And I was looking for the same. And so we matched. And I think that mindset of, in you know, a supply chain, we really are all equals, doesn't exist within capitalism, which blew my mind. I, I didn't understand that that was a radical idea, that there are not lesser people. I think I'm deviating from your question a little bit. But I mean, to answer your question, I felt like I was perfect for this and I felt like I was born to do this. And that I've never had that confidence. I am a confident person, but I haven't had that confidence about the calling or work before. And in terms of everything I know and how hard it was and how daunting it was, definitely. I mean, I started doing the research on this in February 2017, and I launched the company in a very bare bones way with nothing fancy, really in august twenty seventeen but those six or so months, people are often like, "Oh, but that's so fast," and it's like, "Yes, but I had no employees. I had no job prospects, I had no money, so this is all I did. I like lived and breathed, getting my custom certifications, getting my like spice board approvals. I was in Mumbai just for a straight six months, doing nothing else and often making no progress and I think I came back to the U.S. in June of 2017. So February to June, you know, a few months into it. I remember being like, look, guys, I might quit. I don't think I could do this. I don't, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not getting any answers. And literally in June, my dad said, look, just buy a ticket to the Indian Institute of Spice Research. Like, they might not have responded to you for months, but why not just try? Like, go talk to them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. he was right in that I showed up and they acted like they'd been waiting for me all along. And I mean, they were literally like, oh, son, i so good to see you. Like We've heard so much about you. And I was like, dude, you ignored my WhatsApp messages for months. <laughs> I saw the red receipt. And then when I would call their office, they were on a chai break for three months. And I, I mean, I quickly learned that that's just how government organizations work. And you just have to show up. But that visit really changed everything for me. And suddenly in person, they were willing to help me. They understood that the research that they had been doing wasn't trickling down to the farmers, wasn't extending to the market. So they have been seed saving these high yielding, incredibly potent heirloom spice seeds that nobody was buying and nobody was selling. And so I think they quickly realized that kind of like Prabhu, I could be the Link that completed the circle, and we've been in business ever since.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. How would you get your first customer?
1: I had my first customer before I started the company, which was John Beaver of Oaktown Spice, because he had basically said, "Whatever you find, like, let us know, and we'll get back to you." And another company that I had reached out to was Gold, which is a pretty incredible wellness company. Like what Trinity is doing for, do you know Gold of No um, sells lattes. Okay, they're fantastic, and Trinity and Issei are um, two young millennials based in New York who wanted to start a wellness company that felt approachable, that felt, I guess, down to earth and not super woo-woo and, you know, head in the clouds. They're really based in, they're very grounded in how they approach things, and I had emailed them at some point being like, hey, you, you know, you're a company that I really like, and I like your visuals, I like how you're branding. Where are you currently getting your turmeric? And they were sourcing well. I mean, they were sourcing from an organic source, but they immediately, I mean, Trinity was so kind in saying, I don't know, but if you know, please let me know. I would love to buy whatever you find out. You know, finding a farm partner is kind of a dream for us. And so if you're able to connect us, that sounds wonderful. And I think after my second or third visit to this farm, I, email Trinity saying, Hey, like I'm actually not doing research anymore. This is going to be a business and this is what we're working towards. So if you're interested, here's some turmeric, I can send you a sample and let's talk and let's do this. And they were on board from day one, pretty much. And so going into the business, I had two large wholesale accounts kind of buffering me. And then we put up our site towards the end of August and opened it for pre-orders. And it was, you know, a shitty Squarespace website that I built myself. And I really thought we would maybe get like two and a half pre orders. But we ended up getting I think we like sold out of our first run in a few hours that day. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I was I was shocked and I really wasn't expecting that. But I think my Oakland community had always been more excited about the idea and giving me more props for it and really pumped me up about it more than I really believed in it myself. I really was seeing this as like a wild experiment. I didn't yet feel like I was responsible for these farmers' livelihoods or feel like I was going to make them bank. I would have liked to, but there wasn't a lot of long-term vision. There was just a, I think, like you said, that curiosity of let's take this one step further. Let's take this one step further. Okay, what's next? And now we're here.
0: I think a lot of people listening, you know, either they are just launching a business or even within their business, they're looking at, you know, everyone's always looking at launching their next thing. And what you talked about, like how you got started, it makes it sound so easy. Like it just happened, you know, the pieces just fell into place. I'm not saying there wasn't a ton of hard work, but it's not like you did some crazy marketing campaign or something to get it going. No. Um, And so I'm kind of curious about that. And my hunch is that because you felt so aligned with it, you're just telling people about it. And people were getting on board just naturally during those six months. Or I don't know what, how do you, why do you think it was, it, it, you know, took off that easily? Yeah.
1: I think that people talk to me and they always say that, you know, you are so uh, like, so incredibly passionate and I don't realize that like often, you know, you don't know what uh, you're so used to what it's like living in your head Mm -hmm. that you don't know what that looks like to the outside. And I've always been kind of an obsessive, passionate person who has causes and beliefs and like overwhelming idealism. And so, yeah, I think, and I've always taken to Instagram to tell like deep, nuanced, complicated stories. That's kind of been how I've interacted with the internet since I came of age in the internet. And so I think in terms of like intense marketing campaign, I was talking about it in a very deep, complex way very early on to anybody I could find and my day job is that I'm a food photographer that's starting to be less and less than my day job. I'm more or less full-time diaspora at this point. I only take on gigs that I really want or are really fun but back then my full-time job was as a food photographer and I mean I was talking to everybody I worked with about this like no matter what I' I'd actually took like a business strategy class maybe two years ago for my photography business. And within 10 minutes of this class, it was kind of in a workshop setting. I had completely switched from talking about anything to do with photography to talking about Diaspora And this woman had to kind of gently ask me, she was like, so well, which one is the business you want to focus on? And I had to sit there and be like, you know, I came here because I want to make more money as a photographer. But what I really love and care about is the Spice business. So I think I'm going to pivot. I think that's what I want to focus on today. And that was such a shifting point to me that without even me wanting to, my heart was kind of just like turning me in another direction and saying, no, 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 this is where you want to go. And then everything kind of bubbled out of that. I I think if if you know me in real life, you know I'm I'm obsessive, I'm a workaholic. And once I think my heart was set on this, it was hard to take my eyes off of it. And everything became about this. And a lot of our early press came from the fact that I was already working with these editors. I was already photographing for these these different press pieces like press outlets. So Diaspora, I think, became a natural extension of their relationship with me or hyping Diaspora Co just became the next step in their relationship with me.
0: I always like to ask, because we're kind of talking about business in the wellness industry, how do you keep yourself well while growing your business? Because I know it can be such a full on intense experience. So Do you believe in this idea of work life balance or how do you yeah, how do you navigate it?
1: So deeply believe in it and I am also really bad at it and I'm really not a model for anybody on work life balance because I think actually in therapy, well, for me the biggest thing is I go to therapy every week and that is a self-care that I feel is just necessary as a business owner because my just my mental health is the most important thing if I am not mentally well. The business falls apart, and I mean, there are definitely days where I'm not able to eat lunch, and I don't prioritize it, and it's not great. And by 5 p.m., my girlfriend comes home, and I'm, you know, ready for a full stage meltdown. And that happens more than I want to admit. It's forced me, I think, to really be emotionally dependent on my partner and my family because often I don't, I haven't even had the bandwidth to reach out to my friends and family. And it's hard because friends and family who have regular jobs don't always understand what starting a business and running a business involves. And it can be quite scary. So that's one part of it. I think that the mental health angle that that for me in the past year has really become a priority that I, I just, I have ultimately my biggest hurdle is my own mind. And I have to prioritize taking care of me in that respect first. And I think in terms of physical wellness and self-care and just health um, and working on it, I think I come from a family of workaholics and I never saw them take care of themselves until now, where my mom at 55 is really starting to, she takes a nap every afternoon. She's radically changed her diet. She She's like very focused on her health because she recognized that she couldn't do it anymore. She couldn't do the 10 hour workdays, the skipping lunch, the like basically being a robot. And it really started affecting her digestion and her ability to live. And watching her, it has been quite scary and has really been, you know, my mother is my model for success, but I also cannot copy that model for success. I have to find one that is a little more gentle. So all that to say, it is a big work in progress. If I can eat lunch five days in a row. I feel like I want it the week. If I can
0: hydrate for the day, I want it something. Mm -hmm, Totally. And I think it it shifts throughout your business too. Like at different times, you know, sometimes you do really great. Like sometimes I'll have a morning routine for months and I'll be like, this is amazing. And then I don't know what happens. Like I just fall off the wagon and it just becomes a disaster for a while. And you just have to get back on and and try again. So thanks. Yeah, I, I think none of us are, none of us are perfect at it. So we're just Yeah, we're not all like yeah, perfect
1: and glowing.
0: Yeah. yeah. What about another kind of tricky topic at the moment is um social media. What's your relationship with social media? Like how do you Yeah, do you love um, it, hate it. Use <laughs> it a lot. I of-
1: actually came of age in social media in the time of social media as a 25-year-old. Like I moved away from home when I was 15 and actually didn't have a cell phone until I was about 16 and then I think Instagram for me has been how I have connected with my community as a young person living alone in the world and having left home very early. I came out on Instagram. I um, have like talked about some of the things that are most difficult to me on Instagram. I'm really a weird Instagram baby, and it's not like I'm some crazy influencer or something. I think it's just that I found that every time I moved to a new place by myself uh, and completely alone... Instagram allowed me to find people, to make friends, to connect on a very deep level with people. So personally, I have always loved Instagram and I found it to be very powerful. I think since I now manage the business's social media as well, that's hard because it means that from when I wake up to when I go to bed, I'm always working because I'm always responding to DMs. I'm always reposting stuff. I'm always worried that if I don't repost something now the Insta story will go away and then I'll miss it. So I have to do it now. So it is a bit never ending. But, and I recently did something on our Instagram where anybody that gave me anxiety, I just unfollowed them. And it wasn't about, it wasn't personal. It was just my mental health comes first. And if you give me anxiety for any reason, it's not that I don't love you. I just can't see it right now. And that's really, that has really helped. And that's been a great method of scrolling scrolling for me, that I'm only scrolling at things that I either learn from or they make me feel better.
0: Yeah, that's really smart. I mean, no, yeah, because <laughs> I hear that a lot that people say, you know, they go onto social media and they just end up feeling worse than before, which I've definitely had to. So doing a little purge of your feed is can really help that. But yeah, it sounds like you're kind of maybe just like it doesn't stress you out too much to be on social media all the time. Like you kind of have a good rhythm with it. It feels mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Yeah. I think me and social media are pretty good. My girlfriend,
1: on the other hand, you know, has an Instagram account that she's posted on 12 times, does not have any relationship to it. And she loves that. And I kind of envy her that she has completely bought out and stepped out of the bullshit. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think for now, the pros and like the connections that I get off of social media are the cons. And if that ever changed, I would reconsider.
0: Yeah if you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were first starting um, Diaspora Co., what would you tell yourself?
1: Huh. um, I've mentioned this once before, but I think given all of the identities that I was trying to wrestle with and reconcile, I didn't know that I was powerful. I thought, well, you're broke. You haven't been to business school. You don't come from a business background. You're just another punk kid doing a thing. So I didn't think of myself I definitely was passionate and felt like I found my calling with this but I didn't think of myself as powerful and I think that's very important because if you don't know that you have power you don't know how to use it and I think in that process I alienated a lot of people like a lot of people found me intimidating because I seemed powerful and they didn't understand why because I wasn't owning it and I wasn't saying yes you're right Like I'm incredibly powerful and Either, you know, this is how we can work together or this is how I could help you or this. I didn't know that I could have impact and that young people were looking to me for advice. I didn't know that my vendors, you know, were looking to me kind of as a pioneer. I was, I think, maybe being overly modest and kind of trying to reduce how I was seen so that even if things went wrong, they wouldn't go too wrong. I think owning power is very important, and it multiplies what you're able to do. I don't know if that sounds too mm, We're no. on a wellness. That's path, so that's cool.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful. Pa- I mean, well, powerful is the wrong word to use, but like <laughs> I haven't actually heard. Th- I asked that question a lot, and I haven't heard that response before. And there's something it like really rang true for me. That sense of yeah, realizing your power, and I I wonder. I mean, how do you know how you did that? Like, how can people? How do you step into something like that? What what did you find? Yeah.
1: That's an interesting one because I think there's two types of people, right? There's the people who are incredibly hard on themselves and modest and self-aware and struggle with everything they put out into the world. And I definitely am on that spectrum. And maybe owning your power, I'm speaking to those people. And then there's the people who I find to be wildly confident, and like overly cocky, and like hype themselves before they even get started. So I'm maybe not speaking to those people as much. But I think you know when you come from that deep self-awareness, I think you own your power by just starting to recognize the times that you're hard on yourself. And really, I think for me, the biggest one was starting to recognize when people were not being mean to me; they were just intimidated by me. And the minute I led to them with softness and like with humility and being like, "Look, I understand," like maybe saying, "Yes, you're right. I am privileged and I am powerful, and I do have." a tremendous amount of power in this space now, it, it softened people and it helped them be less scared of me and it ha- it helped them not react to me out of fear or defensiveness or aggression. And it created just much more honest interactions for me. Awesome.
0: Okay. I want to ask you like one last question, but yeah. about turmeric. Because we all love turmeric. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) so what should we know about turmeric? Like everyone likes to make it in lattes or I've heard you should take it with black pepper. Like give us a little turmeric wisdom to leave us with. All
1: right. So, well, the biggest one is that curcumin, the active compound that has all the anti-inflammatory, like wonderful benefits, is very dependent on freshness. So if your turmeric is more than two to three years old, there is likely no curcumin left in there which is where knowing where your turmeric comes from is super, super important. So turmeric, curcumin exists in the volatile oils of turmeric. And so with time, those volatile oils disappear. You know, they evaporate, they will leach into your packaging. So you're losing curcumin as time goes by. And the FDA really has no messaging around this kind of thing. They have no regulation around this kind of thing a lot of the biggest brands off turmeric can be on the grocery store shelf and can be seven to eight years old. Mm. So that's the biggest one. Like know where it's coming from and know how fresh it is. Know when it was ground and when it was harvested. And really the only two companies really doing that are Diasporco, my company, and one other really wonderful company called Burlap and Barrel. And they're trying to do, they're not coming as much from a turmeric angle, but they they do bring a lot of credibility to and supply chain knowledge and timelines to their spices. So that's the first one. And then the second one is, yes, what you just said that like, if you're taking it for its um, wellness properties, taking it with a pinch of black pepper is very important because pipe rain, which is the active compound in pepper, really boosts the bioavailability of curcumin and then taking it with a fat. And that's why a golden latte is like, So perfect in terms of the wellness benefits. And it's why kind of Indian moms and grandmoms have been recommending this to their kids for hundreds of years because you get your fat, you get your black pepper, and you get the turmeric, and it's heated. So, heat, fat, pepper are all things that increase the bioavailability and the absorption of turmeric. So, you get it in one big package.
0: Awesome. Cool. So, tell everyone where they can check out your company and, of course, buy some lovely turmeric. Yeah.
1: So, we're at Dasparco dot com or Diaspora on Instagram. We're also on Amazon Prime, which not a lot of people know about. And we kind of keep it on the DL because we sell out every time. But if you're on Amazon Prime and you get lucky, we're on there. Um,
0: yeah. Awesome. That's so cool. Thank you so much for being here. It's been really inspiring talking to you. And um,
1: Hi, yeah, thank you for learning. Thanks. You. Thanks.
0: I'm a little woozy from answering questions nonstop. So I'm going to go take a nap now. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Wellpreneur podcast. As always, you can get all the links to everything we talk about in the show notes at wellpreneuronline.com. And if you'd like to keep up with the latest from the podcast in the wellness world and creating a life of freedom and connection and impact, I'd love it if you'd sign up on my email list, which you can get onto at my website, amandacook.me. After this inspiring interview this week, I just want to leave you with a thought of How can you follow your curiosity? Where is your curiosity calling you or leading you today? And are there ways that you can give yourself permission to follow that and see what opportunities it might open up for you in your life and your business? Have a great week and I'll see you back here very soon with the next episode.